Uh, we are currently in part two of a brand new series called The Silent Night Before Christmas. And particularly for part two, this week's message, it's kind of important that you have a bit of a backstory of what last week was about because last week and this week is almost like a mini-series within this series. So if you're here just to catch up, last week Pastor Chris talked about what some people refer to as like the gap in the Bible or what's known as the intertestamental period. Basically, after the Old Testament ends and before the New Testament begins, there's a gap of about 400 years of human history that isn't really recorded in the Bible. And what we found out last week is that that was a period in the time where God was pretty much silent to his people. If you read the Old Testament, a vast majority of the Old Testament is God speaking to his people through kings, through prophets, through judges, through leaders such as Moses and Joshua. And that's primarily the way he guides his people to where he wants them to go. He leads them to the promised land through Moses and Joshua and the leadership of the judges. And then once they're established there, he speaks to the kings. And after a while, he speaks through prophets when the kings stop listening to him. And a vast majority of the Bible, especially the latter half of the Old Testament, are prophets doing kind of crazy things to give God's message to the people. And if you read some of the stories, um, it's, it's kind of crazy the extents that they were willing to go to portray God's message to his people. And then... And we learned last week that after the, the, the chronologically speaking, the Hebrew Bible ends with 2 Chronicles. After 2 Chronicles, there's just silence. And God no longer speaks through prophets. And may, he may have spoken to people on a personal level here and there. But as far as addressing his people on a global national level, it doesn't really happen. And if you're last week, we did some um, biblical math. We did the 70 times 7. We talked about the year of Jubilee and how really this was a time where God withheld his presence or his voice from his people so they could grow. And at the end of this time of silence came Jesus. And it set the stage for Jesus coming to earth. And last week's sermon ended with the question of where we asked ourselves, what does it mean then? We talked about how God was silent in the nation of Israel. And if you notice, Pastor Chris mentioned about how they grew out of this time. We'll talk about a little bit more of that later. But the question then for this week's sermon is, if last week we learned about how God could be silent to the nation of Israel and how thousands of years ago he withheld his voice and he just remained silent in heaven and let Israel do its own thing for a while to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, what does that mean for us here today? It's one thing to know that it happened to a group of people thousands of years ago, but what does that have to do with us in Portland, Oregon in 2022? And today we're shifting the focus away from ancient Israel and applying, well, what does that say about our lives here today and looking at stories from scripture and illustrations we hope to dive into the word. But before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just wanna thank you again for this time and this privilege to be here on the Sabbath to worship together. In your name, Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Father, that everyone in this room be open to your spirit, Father. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. May you work in our hearts and our minds to be open to your word. Praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So before we go any, any further into this idea of a silent night, right, as per the title, or as some may describe this as the dark night of the soul. Two phrases you won't really find in scripture, but kind of coined by Christian authors. Um, it's important to establish a very important distinction as this may apply to you. Because last week, me, many of you may have left being like, yes, this is me. Like, I feel like I'm in that silent night, that dark night. Like, this is awesome. I'm really excited to come back next week. But before we go any further into what you can do if you're in this place, it's important to determine whether or not you are actually in a silent night. And the way to determine that is this illustration of, I don't know if you guys have ever put on a pair of, like, 
very nice, premium, like over-ear, noise-canceling headphones before. But if you've ever done it, it's like one of the weirdest, strangest feelings ever. I tried it once, and I remember the first time I tried it, I put them on, no music was playing, it was just headphones turned on, and then the, the owner turned them on, and then the noise-canceling kicked in. And I don't know if you guys remember the first time you ever experienced this technology, it's kind of crazy. Like, she was talking to me, da -da 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 -da, and then it's just like, boom. And her voice got really, like, aggressively muffled. And it was so weird that it was a little almost, like, disorientating for me. There was no music playing. And the person in front of me was, like, four feet in front of me and talking in a normal conversation level. And I couldn't hear anything they were saying. And then they started playing music. And then it was like I was not even in that room anymore. Like, everything going around me was completely drowned out. And the reason I bring this illustration up is it's important for you to make the distinction between is God actually silent in your life or, going along with this illustration, can you just not hear God? Because while the result of those two are the same, right, either way, whether you have headphones on or whether God is being silent, you still can't hear God, the important distinction comes from what do I do next? Because if you have the headphones, depending on whether or not you can't hear God or whether or not God is silent determines what the next steps for you are. So a few key points for us to help us determine whether or not we're going through a silent night or we just have some headphones on is this. A few questions to ask yourselves. And again, this is really something that only you can answer for yourselves. The first is this. In your relationship with God, has your love for worldly things increased? And what I mean by that is this. When you think about like, oh, I should read the Bible, I should spend time in Scripture, I should pray, and you think about doing it, do you instantly get pulled away to like Netflix or YouTube or TikTok or something else? And the reason this is important is, again, these are all things in our lives that can act as these headphones. And the reality is, if you say yes to any of these following questions, it can be not so much that God isn't talking to you, isn't speaking to you, but just that you can't hear him because you have other things going on. So the first question is, has your love for worldly things increased, right? Are you more prone to doing things that take you away from God? The second is this, are you persisting in sin? And this is kind of a nuanced question. Obviously, we all fall and we all sin. But the question this is really getting at is, are you constantly choosing to persist in a life of sin? When we persist in sin, there's this almost, I don't know if you've ever felt this or thought about this before, like the first time you break a rule. Like the first time you tell a lie, the first time you like accidentally saw someone else's test while you're taking it and you like decide to go with it. The first time you do it, it's like, it's like heart-wrenching and you're like, oh my goodness, this guilt. And it's like so, it wrecks you a little bit. But the more you do it, the more, there's a numbing aspect that comes with persisting to live in a life of sin. And the question is that when we persist in sin, there's an almost numbing aspect to the voice of God that can interfere with us hearing the voice of God and feeling his presence. So the first is, has your love for worldly things increased? The second is, are you persisting in sin? And the third is a little bit more kind of lighthearted. The, the third is, are you, are you healthy? Are you sick or exhausted? And I don't know about you, but at the beginning of this year, I had COVID for about a week. And in the midst of like the brain fog, the sweating, the like body aches, and like, you know, everything else that went through the like constant exhaustion, I couldn't hear or feel much of anything except for my back hurts, much less the presence of God or God's voice in my life. And as obvious as it may seem, there's something to say about if you're emotionally and physically hurting or unwell, it can interfere with the way you experience the voice of God within the body of the temple that is your body. And the last is this, and this may be applied to most people in this room, given that I know you and everyone's got a lot going in your lives, is do you have time for God? 
Or a better way of saying it is, have you made time for God? Because it's one thing to think that God is not speaking into your life and God has no plans for you and God does not have things for you. And it's another thing entirely to not have made any time for God. What do your priorities in your life look like today? Again, just like the two previous examples, it's not impossible to hear God's voice in the midst of hurry and the hustle and bustle of life. But when God is not your priority and you have much other things, important things to do that pull at you in different directions, it's definitely much more difficult to feel or hear the presence and the voice of God. And I imagine for a lot of us, especially during this time of year, wrapping up your school year, Christmas just around the corner, travel plans, getting your life together, whatever it may be, this may be the cause for a lot of us. And it's not that you're in a silent night. It's not that God is intentionally closing his mouth to you. It's that you just have a pair of really nice headphones on and your schedule is just too busy and you haven't made the time for God. And to be honest, no one can really answer these questions except for you. And after taking an inventory of life, if you say yes to any combination of these questions, yes, I do feel like I've, you know, I do all of these things, then there's kind of bittersweet news for you before we go further along in this message. If you say yes, like yes, I'm actually crazy busy right now. Yes, I've been persisting in this life of sin and there's this thing that I really keep falling back to and I haven't really gotten rid of it. And there's this, like, I'm exhausted, I've been tired, or I have, you know, been living in a world where like I just have a love my love for worldly things has increased the bittersweet news is this the sweet news is uh there's a good chance God is not actually quiet in your life and that God is actually speaking into your life you just can't hear him because of the other things you have going along the bitter kind of news is now the ball's in your court and the effort is on you to make some level of whether it's repentance or coming out to God and crying out to God and asking for a heart change but again it's a very different approach that you would take from if God is actually silent in your life and for clarity's sake, before we go any further into this dark night, it's also important to note, to mention that the dark night, or the silent night as we use it to go with the theme of this um, series, is that it's not really a time necessarily of pain and suffering and tragedy. While the two can overlap, there is something to be said about sometimes in the darkest moments in our lives, God's voice and presence is so much more clear. David writes that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In his darkest moments, David is comforted by the presence of God. And as a definition, that's not really what we're talking about today, right? You can be in a dark moment in your life and still not hear God, but they're not necessarily the same thing. So our working definition, with all those disclaimers and asterisks aside, our working definition for what Pastor Chris and I mean when we talk about this silent night or the dark night of our soul is a time when God intentionally takes away the felt sense of his presence in order for spiritual growth and greater intimacy that leads to freedom, peace, and love. A time when God intentionally, when God intentionally takes away the felt sense of his presence in order for spiritual growth and greater intimacy that leads to freedom, peace, and love. And what this is really getting at with the silent night, and maybe the experience that you may have felt is, what do you do when you're doing everything you're supposed to do? And you've made time for God. You're doing your devotions. You come to church. You serve. You pray. You read. You teach. You're doing all of the things. You give. You're generous. Everything you're supposed to do. You repent. You turn away. But despite all of that, you just don't feel God's presence like you used to. 
Again, it's not that you've fallen out of love for God. Your heart still desires and you want to pursue this relationship with God. And in doing so, you're you're doing, you're on the straight and narrow. You're here at church today. You serve. You're doing all of these things. But despite that, you can't help shake the feeling that this is not right. Like I can't, I still, I don't feel God's presence like I used to. I don't hear God's voice maybe like I did at this point in my life. And it can be a very disorientating place to be. And the question further then is, why would God do something like this? Why would God intentionally hold back something that has created, that has led you to the relationship that you have with him today? Why would you, what is the point of intentionally discouraging us, or especially for any prolonged period of time? And at this point, I kind of want to add another personal disclaimer before we go further. Um, I will say that I have not personally myself feel like I've gone through this in my own life. And a lot of what I say in this message moving forward is me saying not of of what I just of what I have and as a student of scripture and I'm humbly just saying these things having prayerfully um, prepared this message but in a lot of ways this is a message as I was preparing it that I really wish I can preach again in like 10, 15, 20 years down the line into my ministry with a little bit more a fuller understanding of this perspective but one of the main reasons I think it's still important that for me to preach this message is that if there is someone going through this at church today, whether you're here in person, watching us online, or listening to us on a podcasting platform, I hope that these words um, that are found in biblical truth can provide some clarity and encouragement. And also, after having done some research and read up on this, I do feel like this is something that a lot of us at some point in our life may go through, and that it may just be a process of growing in our understanding and our relationship of God. But back to the question of why God would do this to us. I want to remind you guys of something. Pastor Chris pointed out something that I actually had never noticed before. Last week we talked about how Israel, during this 400 years of silence, came out the other end, a changed people. And if you remember, you may have never noticed before, I didn't either, that there's this very important distinction between the Israel of the Old Testament and the Israel of the New Testament in that there is definite growth. There's a positive change that occurs. And if you read the entirety of the Old Testament from Genesis, I want to say 30, 31 is like the first time idols are mentioned. From that point, they continue and persist to struggle and idolatry throughout the entire Old Testament. And pretty much what every single prophet says is the same thing. Turn away from idols. Repent. Turn back to God. Be faithful to God. Remember the Lord your God. And time and time again, it's like a bad addiction. They keep relapsing back into idolatry and idolatry. Yet when Jesus appears on the first pages of the gospel, you may not notice it because they got a whole other sort of issues going on. But they've kind of shaken off the shackles of idolatry. They don't really struggle with that anymore. And maybe on a smaller scale here and there, there are some individuals that may have. But again, on like a national scale, as a people, they really didn't struggle with that anymore. And that same line of thought, I think the reason God puts his followers through a silent night is so that he can help grow us to become mature, more mature followers of Jesus and to have a deeper understanding of our relationship with him. That in a time when we can't feel God's presence, or hear God's voice, when it feels like we're drifting further away from God, God is actually maturing us and growing us into a deeper understanding of who he is and what it means to follow him. And to illustrate this, I want to ask you a question. When you say that you feel God's presence, what do you mean by that? Or on the flip side, when you say, I cannot feel God's presence, what do you mean by that? What are you referring to? Think about it a little bit. Earlier on, um, 
Pastor Chris has mentioned this a few times um, during my time here, but he's talked about his altar call, um, an altar call experience he had at PUC Camden, and where Dan actually was the one that made that. Coincidentally, um, when I was probably around the same age as Pastor Chris, um, I had the same, like, similar experience, um, but unlike Pastor Chris's photographic memory, I don't know who made the altar call or who was speaking, but I do remember being in Daphne Chapel and sitting um, with my small group. I might have been maybe junior high or high school. I wasn't a leader. I was a student, and I also don't remember what the message was about, but I do remember that at the end of the message, the, the pastor painted the death of Jesus, like the, Jesus on a cross, in a way that I had never really understood it before. I had definitely heard it before, but for whatever reason, this time I heard it, it like clicked. I was like, oh my goodness. The phrase amazing grace and amazing love came to mind. I was like, wow, that is that's amazing. And if you didn't grow up in church and you're unfamiliar with what an altar call is, it's basically when a pastor or a preacher, at the end of his or her message, will make a sort of appeal. And it'll generally go something along the lines of, if you would like to give your life to Jesus, if you'd like to repent, if you'd like to commit, then I would like you to, and they follow that up with some level of action. Raise your hand, stand up, come to the front. And the idea is that you tie a sort of like physical action with the decision you're going to make to make it a little bit more memorable and um, impactful in your life. And I remember the pastor made this appeal, if you'd like to give your life to Jesus. And he said, if you'd like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and accept what he has done for you, then stand. And I need to add some context into who was in the room. The room was filled with teenagers, okay? Junior high school, high school students, VBS might have been there. And if you've ever been in an altar call situation with like teenagers, the first thing that happens it's not that people look down and bow their heads and like talk to God, it's they'll look around, right? Like, oh, who's gonna stand? And in that moment, I felt this like, for lack of a better word, like this churning. I was like, this, like you should stand, right? You believe this, like you've never heard it the way you did before, like you should stand. And my, my heart started like pounding, my palms were sweaty, my knees were weak, my arms were heavy. I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. And I was like struggling with it for a while and then, as it goes, like one or two people start standing up. And then people like, sometimes I start clapping and look around. I was like, okay. And I don't know, you may not know this about me considering what I'm doing right now, but like I don't love it when like everyone looks at me. And like, every, like I'm the focus of everyone's attention. I didn't love that. So I was like, okay, God, I'm like wrestling with God. And a part of me was like, God, you know all things. Do I need to stand? Like you know my heart. Like Lord, like come on, you and me. I, I love you, I believe you, amen. Let's leave it at that. But I couldn't shake this like, no, like you should do something. Like this requires a certain level of like action. Like Jesus died for you, you can't stand up in a church. I was like, ah. And so a few, few more people talked and then uh, started standing and then I stood up with everyone else. And as I stood, like my knees were wobbly. I was like drenched in sweat. And then I stood up, I remember this like, this sense of like, like calm assurance, like I had done the right. There was a sense of relief and like the best word is like assurance, like this, I did the right thing. And I remember standing there and I remember I looked up, I was standing at the front of the church, I was in the first few rows, and I looked up at where like the wall meets the ceiling towards the front of the church. I remember just looking up and just feeling like very at ease, despite the fact that I was out of my comfort zone. And it felt like, for lack of a word, like very good. Like this was like I had done a good thing. And I had this rush and this calm assurance. But as foundational as that evening was, and as important of a memory as that is for me in my decision to follow Jesus, I will say I have never felt that again in my life. And the reason I say that is because that's, 
same thought, that same event came to mind the first time I did not stand for an altar call. And I don't know if you've had this situation before, but uh, a few years later, I was at my home church, and the pastor, um, I want to say he was a guest speaker, gave an appeal. Now I'm surrounded by, like, I'm not a camp meeting. I'm a normal, normal church with my friends, people I grew up with, and the pastor, he said this message. I don't remember the message was, but I definitely didn't, like, you know, feel anything new. And he made this appeal. Right? If you'd like to commit your life to Jesus and you, you, know, you were not following Jesus, you'd like to commit to him now, please stand. And this was one of those altar calls where like, everyone just stood. Right? It was just like, oh, like, we're just going to stand because he's going to ask us to stand to pray. So everyone just stood up. And I remember my friends started standing up and I didn't stand up. And they're like, they looked at me like, dang, what a sinner. Like, look at you not standing. And they're like, just stand up. And at one point they were like, it's just a polite thing to do. Just stand up. <laughs> And I was like, but I've already given my life to Jesus. Like, I don't, what do you want me to do? Like, retract that statement? And I remember thinking back on that moment at camp and we're like, but I already gave my life then. Like, do I have to? And then the prompt was very clear. He didn't say, if you'd like to rededicate. He said, if you would like to give. And I was like, I'm just following the instructions, guys. I'm not going to stand up. And I remember in that moment, like, it made sense I wouldn't stand. But in the same way, like, I remembered that feeling I had back then, like, oh, yeah. A part of it was, like, I didn't have that feeling now. But also there was the, the, the intellectual, like, yeah, well, I already gave my life to Jesus. And I think for a lot of us, we can probably relate to the sentiment about maybe you've done the same, or you stood up for an altar call, or you, like, went a little bit out of your comfort zone um, for God, and you felt this, like, this immense, like, positive emotion, right? Maybe for some of you, it was on the way down from a camp meeting or a Kayam or Big Lake or a summer camp, and you just, we called, we have a word for this, and we've preached this, a series on this before, like the spiritual high, and your relationship with God was associated with all these positive emotions, right? God is good. God is awesome, and you made some grand promises. I'm going to come down this mountain. I'm going to come home, and I'm going to read the entire Bible five times in two weeks, and you just felt this sense of, like, joy and positive emotion towards God. And the notion of a spiritual high is that you feel amazing after a retreat. You feel good. You feel so close to God. You feel like a better person. And then a week later, you don't feel any of those things anymore. And then it confuses you a little bit. You're like, what happened? What? Am I not as close to God now? Is it, was I there? And it creates a lot of confusing and a very disorienting place to be. And I think Early on in our relationship with God, according to some Christian writers, um, the, the notion, and I think this makes a lot of sense, is that we operate on what people have called this pleasure principle, where a lot of our emotions with God, our experience with God, is associated with an emotional high or generally good feelings, whether it be like a spiritual high after a summer camp or an amazing praise session or amazing sermon. And these positive emotions are associated with who God is. And I think most of us have probably felt this in some way, shape, or form before, an amazing worship service. That was fire praise. Oh my goodness, that message, that weekend changed my life. I served, I did praise, I was out of my comfort zone, and I felt God come into my life. I taught Sabbath school, I was nervous, but it went so well. God is good. I'm so relieved and comforted and encouraged. Now, to be clear, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with those emotions. And I think in a lot of ways that those emotions that we feel, that good vibes that we get from doing those things and serving God are in fact messengers from God and given to us out of God's grace and kindness towards us. But I think we can also agree that that's probably not a sustainable place to be in our spiritual walk. 
Most of us have experienced it ourselves. We have those emotions. We feel close to God, so we think we must be close to God. And then just a week or two later, maybe a few days later, those emotions are gone. And the question you have now is, where is God? Well, was that fake then? No, I don't think that was fake what I had then. But I definitely don't feel God now. So does God, is he not here? Is he not speaking to me? And it's a very, again, a disorientating place to be because we're not sure where those emotions, those feelings went. And I think the temptation a lot of times is that when we are in those early stages of our relationship with God and just starting to form that relationship and we just start getting out of our comfort zone to serve God and to follow God, those emotions that come to us, we love them so much that it's easy to worship and love the feeling that God gives us over God himself. And that sometimes what we end up chasing and following is not after Jesus, the person of Jesus and what he's done for us, but the feeling that Jesus gives us. And it's a very delicate nuance because I believe that in a sense, those emotions that we got are legitimate and from God himself. The problem is we make a good thing into, into God. And I don't know if you've ever had this a situation before where early on in a relationship with God, we feel this emotional high and what God, and this is to quote um, a pastor in this area, early on in a relationship, he says that we feel an emotional high and what God is doing to us during this dark night of the soul is he's weaning us off of our love for the world and calling us to, uh, causing us to fall in love with God instead and in grace lets us have these, all this emotional kickback from Jesus. And if you've ever been in those moments, and I, want, I think especially for the youth, if when you go to the end of a Kayam and you're like, you do afterglow and people share testimonies and you make all these like dedications to give your life to God, in that moment, you love God more than you love the world, right? In that moment, like God brings you enjoyment and love and you're like, yes, this is so good. And in other words, when we have that spiritual high, we make that decision, we enjoy Jesus more than we love the world. And again, I think those positive feelings are legitimate. The downside of all of this is that this is an unsustainable place to be as many of us have probably experienced for ourselves, that we don't follow Jesus necessarily at this stage because we love him. We love the feeling that we get from Jesus, and we equate our feelings of God with God himself, and we get stuck when we feel like we're worshiping God, but we're worshiping the feelings that we get from God. And what can happen sometimes is in an effort to chase after that feeling, we lose sight of what this relationship with Jesus is all about. I remember when I was in, in college and I just like started getting to praise and I was um, at Andrews and I was one of the praise leaders that they picked. Um, what I would start to do is a terrible habit that I had and I'm glad I, I shed this before I came here is that like as a praise leader, like you would like watch other praise teams and be like, oh, like what are they like? Oh, I wouldn't have picked that song. Oh, that song should really have gone last, not second. Dude, this is definitely an opening song. I don't know why you made this a closing song. And like you get this like vibe and you have these like preferences for how worship should be. I remember this one time after worship, um, we were walking to, to the Pollock line and my friend and I were talking and my friend was like, wasn't it so, wasn't that worship so awesome? Like, didn't you love how they tied in the end of the sermon to the closing song and the themes of those songs and message fit so well together? And I was like, ah, dude, but I didn't love the song. Honestly, I didn't like the set list. And like, I didn't feel like it was that good. And he asked me why. He's like, wait, why? What was wrong with it? And I couldn't really answer him. I was like, I just didn't like it. Like, I didn't like, I don't know. And I like, that's literally how I answered him. And he was like, but don't you feel like, the message and the song went so well together. And for me, honestly, I didn't catch any of that because the minute 
all I was focused on in that worship was like, what do I like? What do I enjoy about this? And I had totally lost sight of why I was there to worship God and learn more about God in community. And anything about the message or the song, what the songs themselves were saying were totally lost on me because I just didn't enjoy it. Like, I didn't like what was going on. And I feel like for a lot of us, maybe we can feel the same way. Is you have this state of, I want to feel a certain way again. That I want to feel how I felt when I was really close to God, whether it was at that retreat or after that worship. And it's a dangerous, it just becomes a dangerous place to be when how we feel about God, how we feel about worship, how we feel about our relationship with Jesus becomes our barometer for faith and truth. And when we feel like we're close to God, we must be close to God. And when we feel good things, when we read the Bible and we feel comforted and we feel like God is close to us and we feel a sense of like appreciation and, and, and comfort and steadfast when we serve God, then we're doing the right thing. But when you read the Bible and you don't, there's no emotional comfort, there's nothing that comes out of it, God must not have been speaking to me. Or there must have been something wrong in the presence of God is not here. And what God is doing to us through the silent night when he puts us through an extended season of where we can't feel or sense his presence is he's weaning us off of that sort of pleasure principle where, we just, where all we're looking for is to feel a certain way from God. And when God closes the door or he doesn't speak to us and he doesn't allow us to feel his presence anymore, what he's doing is almost like a baby growing up, he's weaning us off of the milk and onto solid foods, as the apostle would say, into a more mature state. Where listen, you're, the entirety of your walk with Jesus and our relationship cannot be based on do you feel good about what I'm doing in your life? What happens? We, we sing just about this. Uh, the first song we, was we praise you. Right? We sing your name in the night and it calms the storm and does all these things. But what happens when you cry out God's name during a storm and the storm is still there? Is God not there? What's true? Like what was, what's really happening, right? What happens when you're in the valley of shadow of death and you're not all that comforted and you cry out to God and you don't hear anything? Is God not listening to your prayers? What happens when you're confused and you cry out to God for answers and clarity and you don't hear that shining light or that voice that directs you go left or turn right? Is God no longer there? Is God far from you now? What does that really mean for your life? And again, I think a part of the reason why God puts us in this state where he intentionally pulls back the felt sense of his presence is to wean us off of this is not how our relationship can sustainably operate, where God is slowly training us to let go of that emotional barometer and grow us to a much more mature understanding of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus as we move past pure emotions as our main motivator for worship and following Jesus. And the truth is, honestly, we've experienced this in a lot of different ways in so many of our human interactions, whether it's through, like, exercise or your relationship with your significant other. And I remember, and I asked permission for this, I remember when I first started talking to Olivia very early on. Some of you may not know this, but this makes a lot of sense. And as I was, like, thinking about this message, this fits so perfectly, given that we have kind of a spectrum of where everyone is um, in your relationship. But um, I posted a story of myself rock climbing, which I never do. And the reason I posted a story of myself rock climbing was because a month earlier, Olivia had come up to Portland for Big Lake. And we spent some time talking because we're like, you know, we're cleaning up after everybody and it was like just us doing kitchen and we're talking and she was like, I really like rock climbing. And so a few months, like a month later, I was in Seattle and my friends were like, do you want to go rock climbing? And I said, no. And then I was like, actually, yes. 
I would like to go rock climbing. And we're rock climbing, and I remember I had my phone to a friend, hey, just record just me going up this thing real quick. And I posted it on my story, and it may or may not, I'm not trying to say it was, may or may not have been a targeted ad, but I'm just trying to say that uh, three other people like messaged me on my story, and I did not talk to them for nearly as long as I did with um, Olivia. And I remember as I posted it, I was like, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. And I remember she texted, she like messaged me, oh my goodness, she went rock climbing. And I was like, oh my goodness, I did go rock climbing. That's crazy that you noticed that. I remember this, this, I was at the rock climbing gym and I was like so excited. I was like so happy. And I was like, I love rock climbing. Rock climbing is the best <laughs> thing ever. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where I know, married couples, you all have been in this stage where you're like, okay, we've opened the door to a conversation. I just have to keep it open now. And how do we talk? And I remember being like so nervous about like, you know, we're talking and it's just mainly about rock climbing, but I'm like, I need to turn this conversation away from rock climbing because I don't know that much about rock climbing and I'm like running out of stuff to talk about. I don't even like this that much. And like, I remember like, you know, being really nervous and stressed out. Like, how do I keep this going? Like, don't make it awkward. Make sure there are no like awkward pauses in this conversation. And as we were talking, I was like, the main goal I had was how do I keep this, keep this conversation going so that we can like keep on talking and we can turn it to something more. And I was like, I had this idea and I was like, this is brilliant. And I got really excited when I like thought of this. Cause again, I was really stressed about like, how can we keep this talking? And I was like, you know what? You know, getting past dinner, getting a little bit late. And I was like, what I'm gonna do is she's gonna message me and then I'm not gonna respond until tomorrow. And I'm going to like, that's how I'm going to keep the conversation going naturally. I'm just going to, she can text me. It'll be kind of like late-ish and I'm not going to respond. And the next morning, I'll just pick up where we left off and then we can keep talking. Honestly, it makes, oh guys, it makes a lot of sense. This really, it makes a lot of sense. And as I had that thought, and I was like, I said, I felt this sense of relief. Like, okay, we're good. We're fine. She texts me. All right, well, I'm going to go. Good night. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? And then in that moment, like I genuinely felt like, my heart genuinely sank. And I was like, so it's over. <laughs> like, so this conversation over, like it is what it is. And I was like, that emotional high that I had, I just felt like I was at like whatever the bottom of the scale emotionally can be. And I was like, I did not account for this. And I was like, okay, so she doesn't want to talk to me. That's good. That's fine. I was like trying to come to terms with this. And as I was getting ready for bed, I had another brilliant idea. I was like, I got it. I know how I'm gonna keep this conversation going. And I remember going to bed really excited. I was like, this is gonna work. And again, keeping in mind that we started this conversation talking about rock climbing. And I, and I very quickly started away from that. I woke up the next morning and then I was in Seattle, so I was about to drive down. And before I left, I messaged her saying, man, I am so sore from rock climbing. How do you do this all the time? And then all of a we started talking again. I was like, yes. And I remember driving down to Seattle and like constantly checking my phone and like being nervous and excited every time she texted and being like a little sad when she didn't respond for a while. And then when she did respond, I was like, okay, well, how do I talk about this? All that to say, those first like 36 hours were like the biggest emotional roller coaster I've ever been on my life, from like the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. I was excited, distraught, confused. There was a lot of praying going in between these times. And again, in a lot of ways, the word I would use is that was a very emotional experience, right? And I remember like that feeling of distraught I got when she said, okay, well, I'm going to go to bed now. Good night. And ended that conversation. Like that kind of that stuck with me. And we talked about this. But I would argue that that being said, and looking in this room where there's a, a fair amount of married couples here, couples with kids, couples that have put in time, 
I bet you that this past week, think about this past week on a weeknight, maybe you and your significant other were staying up, and um, your significant other looked to you and said, all right, I'm going to go to bed now. Good night. How did you feel? Probably not sad. Like, probably not distraught and emotionally wrecked like I was. But that goes to show as emotional, as, as highly emotional as my relationship with Olivia might have been at that point, no one would make the argument that because I felt so much more emotionally towards her that I am somehow in a more intimate, closer, more fuller relationship than any of the married couples here in this room that have put in the time and gone through the work. And I think it's a very apt example of our own relationship with Jesus. Where at the beginning, again, much like a human romantic relationship, it's like you feel so good. Like you get the butterflies and it's, everything's exciting and new. And generally speaking, you know, if you like this person and you guys are compatible, a lot of what the beginning of a relationship is like is like these, these good feelings of like, yes, this is awesome. He or she is amazing. This is amazing. I love this. I love these feelings. And at some point, I imagine from the road to from like, I like you, and which is all like feeling based to like you saying I do at some point at your wedding, there's somewhere along the lines, maybe a little bit down, further down the road, where you have to come to terms with, I don't feel the same butterflies and excitement as I did with this person that I first saw them, but that's not necessarily a barometer of how close you are with this person in your relationship. And I imagine the road to getting there was not a smooth ride, and that at times of hardship and adjusting to a relationship that was not driven by pure emotions, but rooted in something much, much deeper and much more lasting. And I think there's something to say about the beauty of, like, when you see a really old couple, like, you know, walking together, holding hands. That's, like, beautiful, and that's awesome because a part of you knows, like, the road to get there must have been crazy, and they stuck through all of that. Nobody says that about, like, a teenage, like, 13, 14-year-old couple. Like, oh, that's so beautiful. Maybe you do, but it's not definitely, not nearly in the same way that you would say that for, like, an elderly couple that has put in that time. And in the same way that's sticking around in a human relationship through the ups and downs and past all the feelings and butterflies and trials leads to the beauty of a married couple and a family and all the things that come with that in the same way that Israel's time of silence between the Old and New Testament led to their growth and their shedding of the temptation of idolatry and ended with the coming of the Messiah. In that same way, if you're going through a silent night, understand that breakthrough is coming and that God has you right where he wants you. That in the time of trial and confusion, consider the words of the Apostle James in chapter 1, where James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So if you're related to any part of this message and are wondering at this point, so what do you do? Right? And again, if you're in that situation where I, I desire to follow God, that's still there. I don't really have a desire to go back to the world and just live this secular lifestyle, but I just don't feel as close to God as I used to. I don't hear God in the same way that I used to. The question then becomes, well, what do I do? I'm, I I'm feel like I'm in the right place. I'm doing all the right things. I just am not getting the results that I'm looking for. The first thing that you should do is you, sh you should not, I would argue, cannot go through this time in your life by yourself. And I think about, especially during a time when you can't sense God's presence, it can be a time that's wildly confusing and disorientating. And it's so easy for us in that moment to just get lost and completely discouraged. 
and just to stay there. I've talked to some people, and I feel like the, the vibe of when I talk to them about the relationship with Jesus, I feel like a lot of it came down to they hit this road. They hit this silent night. They hit a point in their relationship where, like, you know, I just couldn't feel God the same way I used to. I can hear him and sense him in the same way that I could, and they just stayed right there. The danger of becoming stuck in this point in your spiritual walk is not that you're going to just leave the church. And these people are still in the church. They're still Christians. They still believe. But there's just no growth in this spot. They're just disillusioned, disheartened. They're like, I'm okay where I'm at because it is what it is, which is a fairly defeatist thing to say in your relationship with Jesus. I don't feel God. I don't hear God. I mean, I read sometimes. I do it. But like, you know, I feel like this is just what it is, right? You grow up. You just don't feel. You don't hear God anymore. God doesn't work in you anymore. I mean, he did in the Bible. He does for the young people. But for me, not so much. And it's so easy to get stuck here, especially if you're going through this by yourself. And I think of Eve in the garden by herself. And I wonder if the results between her and the serpent would have been different had Adam or somebody else been by her side when the serpent questioned everything she thought and believed about God. Is it possible that if she had companionship and someone to lean on during her times of confusion that she could have come out on top? And in the same way that I feel like when your faith seems weak, you need to be around those whose faith is strong and realize that there are people in this community that have gone through what you are going through now and have come out the other end and can walk with you on your journey to get there. The second is this. Remember God's faithfulness in your past. I'm going to read uh, Psalm chapter 77. and it's, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter, which is about 20 verses, but we'll have it on the screen for you guys. And I feel like this is an example of someone in scripture going through the dark night, the silent night for their own, and this is how they chose to cope with it. Psalm chapter 77, starting from verse 1. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the prophets. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led, to the sea, led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I want to read those first three verses for you one more time. And if you relate... To, any, to this on any level, I hope this can be a word of encouragement. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and groaned. 
not smiled, not leaped for joy. I remembered God and groaned. I meditated, I prayed, and my spirit grew faint. I feel like in a phrase, in a passage, this describes so aptly what the dark night is like. That when you turn to God and you aren't met with positivity and comfort and good vibes and a solution of all your problems, but you turn to God and you don't feel any different. You don't feel a sense of, I'm going to be okay. What happens when you turn to God and your senses pick up nothing? You cry out for God and you're not comforted. You're in, you feel exactly the same way you felt before you prayed. Is in these moments where you must lean into community and lean on others. And two, remember God's faithfulness in the past. To quote a modern song, what's true in the light is still true in the dark. What's true in the light is still true in the dark. The fact that you feel the way you feel now does not negate and is not an indictment on everything God has done in your past. It does not mean that when you gave your life to God 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago and you felt this sense of joy that that was all wrong and false and untrue, what's true in the light is still true in the dark. And it's helped me when I view the silent night not as a transition from wrong to right, where emotions are all bad and everything after that and being apathetic and being calm is all good, more of a journey from less to more or surface to depth where you understand that your relationship with God, while emotions are a part of it, is not completely encapsulated by just feeling good when you call on God's name. Don't stop. It's too easy to become disillusioned when you're by yourself and you just give up but I'm here to tell you, hopefully this can be words of comfort and encouragement, that when you keep going through this and you stay in the dark night and you lean on others and you go on more on faith, not by sight, you come out the other end with a much deeper understanding and appreciation of who God is. And if you feel this way and if you feel disillusioned and discouraged, I don't judge you at all. I, in many ways, I understand to a large degree where you're coming from. And if you were here last week, Pastor Chris kind of teed up, um, he hyped up this quote that I was supposed to share by C.S. Lewis um, this week. And we're gonna, I figured when I read the passage, I was like, okay, I have to end on this. This is just too good. Um, and it's a passage from a book called The Screwtape Letters. And before I read it, you need a little bit of context to, it, to understand what this is really talking about. The Screwtape Letters is written by C.S. Lewis, who himself went through this dark night of the soul. He writes about it himself, where he cried out to God in the midst of tragedy, and he felt no comfort. And so this is really coming from a place, the footsteps, and the voice of someone that has walked in these footsteps. And, and he writes this in the Screwtape Letters, which is um, a work of satire. So basically, the Screwtape Letters is from the perspective of like a senior demon writing to like an apprentice demon. So these are like bad guys talking to each other. And anytime it says the word him, it refers to God, and when it says the word creature, it refers to us. We are the creature, unfortunately, and him or he is God in this context. It might take a sentence or you for you to adjust, but keep in context, this is the satire. So we'll put the quote on the screen and we can follow along. He, this is God, remember these are demons talking to each other, he will set them off with communications of his presence, which though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws. If not, in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all the supports and incentives. He leaves the creature, us, to stand up on its own two legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during these trough periods, which much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness 
are those which please him best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. What's true in the light is still true in the dark. And we hope that if you are in this time, all the more reason we're glad that you're here today and you can join us as we walk with you in your journey with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray this prayer humbly upon anyone that may be feeling this way with you in a state of confusion and an ununderstanding of what's going on in the relationship. Father, we know that in all things, Lord, you do what is good for us. And our prayer today is this, that in the words of James the Apostle, that we can let perseverance finish its work so that we can be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Father, help us in these moments, Lord. Give us the people that need to speak into our lives, Lord. If not to you, then through those and the love around us, Father. Help us not to walk alone, Lord. And for, for those that may not be feeling this way, Lord, help us to be the light and the comfort that comes to others when they're in this state, Lord. Help us to lean not only on our own understanding and on our emotions, but on faith and truth. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight and feeling, Lord. In these things, we continue to ask for your grace when we stumble, for your mercy, your understanding, and your forgiveness, Father. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen.